This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. My guest on this episode is Dr. A.G. Okawa, postdoctoral researcher in the Department of History at the University of Victoria and a researcher at the Landscapes of Injustice Project. His article, Japaneseness and Racist Canada, Immigrant Imaginary During the First Half of the 20th Century, is forthcoming from the Journal of American Ethnic History. Dr. Okawa, thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me here. In your research on Japanese history, I know you've looked at medieval history as well as now looking at the history of Canadian Japanese and, and North America. Mm-hmm. So how does the Meiji Restoration appear in both of these topics, or does it? Very interesting question. That got me thinking about you know how, as a historian, we are impacted on by events of the past and uh, legacy, a <laughs> great legacy, or uh, the course of Meiji Restoration lives on and to affect what we do as historians. And in my two areas of research, um, a study about the political history of a Buddhist temple in late medieval and early Tokugawa Japan, and the study about Japanese immigrants in 20th century Canada is affected by Meiji, uh, the, the events and transformation in the Meiji. Um, and I think, you know, when I think about the place of Meiji restoration in Japanese history or, or global history, I like to think of it as a uh, instance of a transformation of how society imagined itself, how it understands itself, and how it situates itself in the world, and how it understands its own history. And you know, when I say this, I am drawing on Charles Taylor's ideas about social imaginary. Um, he talks about that in the context of Western modernity and saying that you know, social imaginary is. Uh, the way in which people imagine their existence and how they fit themselves with others and commonly shared assumptions or ideas about legitimacy and, and things like that. So Meiji restoration and the decades that followed, I think, constitute a period of, of change in, in these imaginaries. And that has inf- influence on, on my relationship to the topics that I do in uh, direct and indirect ways. So, you know, for the first topic is uh, a political history of a Buddhist temple, a remote temple on the mountain called Koyasan in western part of Japan. And I'm looking at how this temple, the social organization at this temple changed from uh, the late medieval, uh, the 14th century uh, onwards, uh, and how that was affected by the state formation in the late 16th and early 17th century. And, uh, you know, that's a topic that, at first sight, doesn't have anything to do with the major <laughs> restoration. Uh, but, you know, as a researcher, we use our historical sources. Uh, uh, so Mount Koya, Koya-san is one of those sites with massive amounts of historical records from medieval and early modern period. And uh, one of the most important set of historical documents of uh, Koya-san is, happens to be a collection that was published by the Historiographical, Historiographical Institute of Tokyo University back in Meiji, like 1904 to 1907 or something like that. And that collection goes by the title of Dai Nihon Komonjo Iewake, so uh, Old Documents of Great Japan. 
And so we use this kind of document. Uh, so this is just a fraction of the documents that were uh, collected, accumulated at Khorasan, uh, comprised of something like 3,500 documents. And so here we have a, a Buddhist temple with long history, with its complex organization, with its own archival system, uh, maintaining, preserving documents. And in three decades after Meiji Restoration, formation of a new kind of political order, we have a group of secular historians, professional historian, historians affiliated with the Imperial University going into archives of these temples and, and making these records of the past available for historical research. And that is unthinkable if it were not for the Meiji uh, social change that took place in the Meiji. Uh, there, for one thing, there's a kind of a new discipline of history that emerged, um, and then it is a project to compile the nation's past, make the records available about the history of, of the past. And uh, there is a major rupture in, the in how this historical uh, document, how it manifests to the world, uh, becomes a historical document. Whereas prior to the restoration, you know, these are not really documents. These were actually... Uh, um, sort of treasures that were prized by the monks and they were stored in a very special place. And when I, when I think about the making of documents available to historians, there is actually a kind of linearity as well as rupture in, in the flow of time. And what I mean by that is that although the Tokyo University historians went into Koyasan and grabbed these documents or digitized or, or copied them, microfilmed them or whatnot, uh, it's not as though that they went into the archives and got through all the documents they, they had. They actually um, drew on uh, collections of documents that were already compiled by Koyasan monks in the early modern period. And then these were preserved in a, a, a very special place dedicated to the founder of the temple. Um, the function, you know, what are these documents about? You know, when we think about historical documents, you know, it's it's what are the historical documents? It, to me, the, the documents that many of the documents that were kept at Khoyasan were uh, instruments of power. They were used in the context of dispute between two status groups of Khoyasan, and they were also organized and compiled in the, the early modern period in relation to the disputes that were taking place. And so interestingly, the disputes were being resolved by the Tokugawa authorities, Tokugawa judicial authorities, um, and that was the context of the compilation of documents by Khoyasan monks. But now, you know, why, why does it become available? Why, why do monks not care so much about the documents so that they release it to the public? There is a profound change in the function of, of documents. So um, whereas in the early modern period, it's a, a society organized by status, documents as evidence of precedent were important to, to assert and maintain prerogatives. But in the Meiji, the status order is abolished. Uh, the, the, the formal status give away to uh, a new category of peoplehood, uh, the subject, Xinming, of the Meiji state. And, and so the, the documents, the, the function of the documents to, to assert power loses its significance. And then I think it has a different, monks at Khoisan have different relationships with historical sources, and, and hence it goes into the historians. You mentioned the function of the documents changes, but I wonder if there's also a parallel transition in the epistemology of history, mm. and the production of history. Mm. I mean, the monks aren't preserving mm -hmm. these documents mm -hmm. with an eye towards 
creating history or writing mm-hmm. history. Right? right. It's more yeah. kind of documenting the history of their own temple or, or almost just kind of file keeping in case of audit, being audited later or something yeah. like this, I imagine. Whereas you have these historians who are mm-hmm. now working, you'd say, in the service of nation building Mm-hmm. writing the collective history of Japan as a nation are now approaching these documents with new epistemological questions in mm-hmm. mind, going back and using the documents for a new purpose, and it's mm-hmm. the purpose of history in the service mm-hmm. of the nation. Yeah, you know, that's a great point. And again, I would say there's an element of lineality because the documents were also used in before the Meiji Restoration to record uh, history. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they would have chronicle about Koyasan's history, mm-hmm. uh, written by Koyasan monks, but also, interestingly, um, uh, the daimyo of the Mito domain, Mito Tokugawa, uh, Tokugawa Mitsukuni, he was interested in com- compiling history in 1660s, 1670s, and they, he sent one of his scholars to Koyasan to look at these documents, and then that was part of his mm. project to compile you know, the history of the southern court. He was interested in emperor, uh, retired emperor uh, Godaigo, and accessing documents was actually used for historiographical purposes. But y- yes, you're right. In, in the modern period, you have uh, different epistemology. You have more an ideal of scientific history mm-hmm. and making a distinction between you know, things like engi or uh, legendary narratives as that are distinguished from you know social historical documents so uh, research on the temple estates that that's looking at the economic and political structure of medieval uh, period is become sort of the mainstay in the use of these documents in the modern modern era Topics that are separated by what five hundred years, mm-hmm. yeah, and and you say, well, how is it that, mm-hmm. like these things seem incredibly different, and there's no parallels whatsoever. Yeah, in in doing this research, have mm-hmm. you have you been surprised at finding things that resonate with each other across this gap of five hundred years? Uh, resonate, um... or or anything that that you know surprised you at, at how similar. Or, or maybe another way to phrase this is, what interests you in both of these topics? Do you see any overlap? Uh, I think what I see in terms of uh, possible overlap is uh, the records that I look at are, in both instances, uh, records of how humans in different contexts try to organize their society. And they have their own identity. Identity um, In uh, medieval or early modern, there is um, identity of, of status, which is very local, parochial. Um, I mean, they do have ideas about uh, Japan and China and India and things like that, but um, how uh, people assert their interests and contest their interests and try to organize space that is filled with lots of contention and conflict. And the immigrants' uh, experience in North America, too, is an example of how humans um, organize themselves and assert difference, perhaps, um, uh, in, in North America, racism was quite uh, uh, pervasive and sinister form of racism was there to try to exclude the space that the Japanese people of Japanese descent had. In, uh, but then, you know, they, they try to establish their own existence and, and, and make their uh, community uh, thrive in one way or another. And in both, you know, although different places, 
uh, uh, records of how humans have struggled to organize um, their society um, you know, amid schemes of differentiation and different systems of law and things like that. And, and speaking of the way that people see themselves as members of communities, mm -hmm. one of the big questions of pre-modern Japan uh, is how much of a understanding of Japanese nationhood mm -hmm. was there amongst people. And you talked about in North America, for example, the 20th century, mm -hmm. uh, Canadian Japanese definitely saw themselves as members of the Japanese nation. Yeah. Is there a similar sense of nationhood or, or belonging that you see in these records from Koyasan as as late as the, or as early as the late medieval period? understanding of them, themselves as being a part of a nation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you said there is a juxtaposition of yeah. Japan vis-a-vis -vis yeah. China and uh -huh. India. Yeah. Can we extrapolate from that to say there is this idea of a encompassing Japanese-ness in the late medieval period? I don't think there's anything of Japanese-ness, but they have ideas about the country, their country. Uh, they use uh, uh, things like Shinkoku, divine country, or even Nihonkoku. Even in medieval documents, you have what's called a kishomon, a divine vow, and these are uh, vows that were used by different groups to, to um, codify laws or resolve conflicts, and they would invoke Nihon Kokuju no Tenjin Chige, deities of heaven and earth of entire Japanese entirety. Uh, you, you have this kind of a, a loose sense of, of Japan uh, <laughs> with many deities, uh, but uh, and then, you know, if you, if you go forward a little bit to, say, 19th century, so one of the uh, important uh, historical records of Koyasan, if you do a historical study of Koyasan, is uh, a gazetteer that was, that was compiled, that were compiled in the early 19th century. Um, uh, it was not just about Koyasan, it was about the province of Ki. And, you know, when you look at these uh, writings, you would see things like, you know, Waga uh, Dai Nihonkoku, like Our Great Japan, or something like that. And, you know, at that time, there's obviously an inf influence of kokugaku and, and mito late mito school learning and things like that. Uh, so I think there is definitely um, an idea of, uh, of a country, a category of the country, but I would make a distinction between that kind of identity, a loose collective identity about the country, and uh, a sense of Japanese as person, pe a peoplehood. Um, so what struck me when I began my research with Japanese immigrants is the language that they use. Uh, you know, Tristan, when you think about Japanese, what terms do you think of? Like Japanese, like how they express themselves. Nihonjin. Yeah, Nihonjin is typical. Kokumin, yeah, Nihonjin, maybe Yamato Minzoku. Yeah. Hey, these are common too, but what I notice quite pervasive in immigrant text uh, is the term doho. And doho is, is now kind of a dead word, it's shigo. It, it consists of two uh, uh, ideographs, uh, same womb. And it's not a modern term. I think it's a, a term that derived from Chinese uh, tradition, I think. But it refers to ethnic collective. And so they talk about themselves as doho, doho in Canada. And then the overarching uh, slogan that sort of is loudly presented in the public arena of their discourse is doho hatten, progress of our ethnic collective. And, and, you know, that, that is, so doho is a, a category of peoplehood, the idea about the common ancestry, shared culture, and, you know, something close to race or ethnicity. And I don't think that kind of categorical understanding of people really existed prior to um, uh, the social transformation in the Meiji. So I think, you know, ideas about cultural identity, about Japan, this is Japanese heritage, Japanese tradition, 
was quite uh, widely held among people who are reading in the Tokugawa period too. But thinking of themselves as Japanese people, Nihonjin, I, I think that is a modern, modern uh, convention that is, you know, drawing upon uh, the Tokugawa uh, uh, heritage for sure. often talk about the Meiji period as a time when the outside world is coming mm-hmm. into Japan. Yeah. Can we also think of the Meiji period as a time when Japan is now presenting itself to their outside world and actually starting to go out into the outside world? I wonder if, if looking at the history of Canadian Japanese, for example, mm-hmm. and Japanese migration is, is a yeah. good way of getting at that. I, I think so. I mean, I don't um, ex- limit my fo- focus on the Meiji, but uh, when I'm, what I'm interested in in looking at is the the sense of collective identity that were uh, expressed and articulated, perhaps contested by the immigrants prior to the, the Second World War. And I think the marks of the Meiji is quite profound and the idea uh, of the nation. And certainly these, these immigrants who immigrated into Canada, you know, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, they had a strong sense that they were and Japanese, they are part of a Japanese nation, a Japanese ethnic collective that spanned across the Pacific. And yes, the nation was, was in, the, in their vision, I think, expanding into new frontier land. And I think that's how some diplomats understood their position as well. I mean, they're not, you know, North America uh, is a place of emigration, not colonies. So there's a clear distinction between, you know, places like Korea, Taiwan, and later Manchuria that became part of the Japanese empire. But still, you know, there was an imaginary about uh, this nation uh, and sense of peoplehood uh, that was shared between people in Japan, its Asian colonies, and also in North America, for sure. period. It's also the time that Japanese people start moving overseas in large numbers. Mm -hmm. So we have these two things going on, diaspora Mm -hmm. and nation building at the same time. You mentioned that you're studying Japanese immigration to North America. When is it that these immigrants first start coming? Um, The first records of immigrants from Japan in uh, Canada is is 1877, so uh, very Short, shortly after the Restoration, mm-hmm. latter part, part of the 19th century and early 20th century when, when communities began to grow and often these people came as a way of making a living. It was a form of dekasegi for many people and the economic pressure in, in, in the home area um, encouraged them to explore opportunities abroad and they had various kinds of associations, uh, prefectural associations that would that would enable you to find a job and have a contract job and settle down in Canada. 
so there were were these associations also ways for them to kind of stay in touch with other Japanese people at the time and maybe retain strong ties to the community back home? I think so. I mean, yeah, there, I think there was a clear sense that there were Afino ties to Japan in many cases. Um, in some cases, people would come, a second son or a third son or someone like that who can't inherit the household would come, and then they would still contribute to the household, the ie in, in the home uh, home community and maintain um, kind of ritual ties, uh, patronizing local temples and contributing to the butsudan at home and things like that. But I think, you know, uh, uh, one crucial medium for the construction of a Japanese identity in North America or language schools, uh, or newspapers too, you know, print, print media is a medium for conveying, expressing different kinds of identities, but language school. So I'm interested in how, you know, when I look at studies about ethnicity, there's, there are a couple of ideas that, that inspire me. One is uh, Roland, Roland Barth. He talks about the cultural elements or cultural stuff that are constituted of the, of the nation. He doesn't get into that in great detail because he's more interested in the sort of boundary of ethnicity. Um, but this idea that there are constitutive elements that make up the nation. And when I look at the records of immigrant practice, there are language education. Language is definitely one element that was <laughs> integral to their sense of being Japanese. And, you know, this is not uh, a language. It is a kokugo, Japanese language that was constructed in the Meiji period, right? So it, it, it is a modern construct. And then parents, you know, they come here. Maybe they're thinking of coming for short term, but then they may eventually want to settle, settle down and, and they have children. And then they want to educate their children in, in Canada so that they can become a viable member of Canadian society. But at the same time, they want to maintain, they want, they want their children to maintain this Japanese heritage and, and uh, acquiring language was understood to be a very important uh, means for that. And there's a really interesting anecdote. So we're in Vancouver now, um, and on the Alexander Street in Vancouver, this is the area that was center of the Japanese community uh, before the war, which, by the way, was destroyed in 1942 uh, uh, when Canadian government expelled its people from their homes and sold all their properties. Um, this language school on Alexander Street, it opened in 1906, but then th with a the growth of student enrollment, they enlarged it in 1928. And then on the occasion of the opening, opening ceremony, you know, a speech by, by this principal, actually. So the, the, the construction of the school was funded by donation by community members. So, you know, it's not a public school. It's kind of a self-sufficient school uh, institution that is financed by support of Japanese Canadian community. So the, the, in the opening ceremony, he would say, like, you know, that, that this is a teacher who was in charge of the school. This school building is an embodiment of the beautiful heart of all the doho in Canada, all the 20,000 20, doho in Canada. And, you know, with, as with any community, I and mean, the term community itself is kind of problem, problematic because when we say that, we kind of imagine harmonious group of people, which is often not the case uh, in the Japanese immigrant community. There are many conflict, uh, different differences and tensions too. But, you know, when it came to education of children in the language, you know, a lot of these differences overcome. Um, and so there are donations from uh, the immigrants in different parts of Canada, not just British Columbia, but places like Yukon and Manitoba. Mm -hmm. 
uh, this idea that it, it embodied the heart of everybody in Canada. I'm curious about the term doho you mentioned mm -hmm. before. The, it's mm -hmm. this term for the community. Mm -hmm. What was the geographic distribution of it? I mean, what were the, the delimitations? Was it only in Canada? You mentioned British Columbia, but also mm -hmm. the Yukon. Yeah. Would a person in, say, the Japanese community in San Francisco and mm -hmm. Seattle also yeah. be considered a member of the doho? I think so. I mean, they, they also call themselves doho. Oh, they did? Okay. They did, yeah. Mm -hmm. Zaibei doho was commonly used. And I think there's a lot of, probably a lot of connection between uh, the Im immigrant community in Canada and the United States, and you know, one medium for that kind of connection was uh, religion. Like Christian groups, they would often go have conferences, regional conferences of of uh, Christians abroad. Um, so you know, it's not still not a very large amount of people, but um, I think it was quite a, a prevalent category of uh, identity. I was going to say that I think one of the most significant things about the Landscapes of Injustice mm -hmm. project is that you're doing such great work and on such an important topic, mm -hmm. including the existence of Japantown in Vancouver, yeah. which no longer exists, mm -hmm. as you said, because it was dispossessed in 1942. Yeah. And it's recalling this racist history mm -hmm. against Canadian Japanese in Vancouver. And I know your forthcoming article mm -hmm. uh, talks about some of this racism mm -hmm. uh, in Canada and, and speaking about how hard people work to maintain semblances of Japanese identity, learning the language, mm -hmm. associations. I mean, it, it, in the face of this racism makes it even more remarkable. Hmm. Yeah, I think as I see it for immigrants uh, facing racism, discrimination and, and really harsh drive to drive them out. Japanese culture was a source of their strength. Um, so when they taught um, Japanese language, uh, this is the, the, from the perspective of teachers, they would, they would want to, so language is not just a means of communication, it is embodied, embodiment of <laughs> national virtues, as it was understood, uh, you know, moralistic Confucian type of ethical education is is really uh, ingrained in uh, in the at least in the pedagogy of, of the school teachers, uh, and so when you look at say um, a newsletter newsletters that were circulated by the school, it would say you know our school is um, instilling in the children the virtues of 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 the nation, including things like spirit of indomitability, uh, spirit of reverence, spirit of service, uh, and then for what? Not so that they are Japanese, they're solely Japanese, but for them to be better Canadians. So for, for as, as far as the language education was concerned, it was understood by, that by instilling Japanese spirit in the children, they become better Canadians and better Americans. Um, and then, you know, that's, that, that's how they understood things. But then from um, the exclusionist, the, the racist, white um, settler society that tried to exclude them, they read that as being a, an example or uh, evidence of inassimilability of the Japanese people. And these guys are not, these people are not trying to fit into our society. So we're going to press on even harder and expel them. But as the harder that they oppress, they're trying to, to uh, strengthen, strengthen themselves with Japanese virtues. Uh, a, so there's an interesting paradox there. Absolutely. I, I think it's important to remember that the Canadian-Japanese community always did 
see themselves first and foremost as Canadian, mm-hmm. right? Well, it you know these identities that shift and vary from person to person, right? But uh, as far as the immigrant generation was concerned, and as far as the records exist, you know, so the people who left records tend to be men in position of influence. So we can't say make general generalization about everybody, but you know they understood. Well, now let me put it this way. So important and useful concept to think about the politics of identity would be transnationalism. You know, they're being Japanese at the same time Canadian, right? Uh, being being Japanese, asserting that Japanese was a means to integrate themselves into the Canadian social fabric. So in a sense, it's transnational because uh, you're Japanese and Canadian at the same time. But I think for the immigrant generation, how they, their sense of belonging to the Japanese doho, ethnic co- collective, was mm-hmm. different from their sense of belonging to the Canadian uh, political system. I mean, they the immigrant didn't really belong to the Canadian political system because they, were, they didn't have the franchise, so they were deprived of political participation, um, still they try to, to integrate into Canadian community. But they, I think they understood themselves, you know, we are Japanese people, and this is predicated on ideas about common ancestry and common culture. But in that capacity, we can still be Canada, contribute to Canada. And they understood Canada to be a multi-ethnic mm-hmm. country, which was a empire of Britain, uh, Japan's ally. Again, thinking of all of the racism that these people suffered to yeah. still try to yeah. assert they are members of Canada is, is mm. incredibly remarkable. In the article, I imagine you talk about some of these forms of racism. Can you just give us a few ideas of, of the types of things Canadian Japanese immigrants had to withstand? Um, sure. So, you know, we've been talking about Japanese language school, so we can pick up on that. Um, and uh, there was a uh, really racist politician in Vancouver uh, uh, called Halford Wilson. And in 19, actually 1940, they launched a campaign to try to close the Japanese language school on the grounds that they were instilling Japanese nationalism, which was subversive to Canada. And also, schools were a threat to hygiene. You know, there's kind of a, a really uh, a nasty sort of uh, modernist sense that people who are not white and living in in different uh, lifestyle was or not clean and uh, and things like that, and so uh, that was a major uh, movement. Um, and, and the Japanese school teachers had to go into the the city hall to to um, assert that you know we are not being subversive. We are teaching our children to be uh, loyal to Canada, become be good Canadian first and foremost. But uh, you know the city sort of took that seriously, and and for the time being they they permitted the school to continue on. But there's a lot of negotiation that had to be done with with uh, different officials in order to to prevent um, this move to close down the school. a passage from uh, a flyer that was sent by a uh, Japanese thug. <laughs> there was a you know, Japanese thug in Vancouver, uh, Mori Etsuji. He was sort of a, a, a leader of the Doho underworld, running gambling parlor, money lending. But in 1941, he found himself um, in an orbit of Canadian statecraft. 
that was intent on displacing people of his, his people of his type. Uh, so the government wanted to implement policies to 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 move them, and they needed some per person within the community to to liaise between the government and and the community. And this person was uh, selected in that role as that role. But also, um, um, even before the forcible displacement in the spring of 1942, um, after the war broke out, this is early 1942. Uh, he was working with the Canadian government, and he was, at this point, he was urging uh, his fellow Doho members in Canada to invest in Canadian Victory Bond, and he sent flyers to different communities. And this is, you know, one of the many remarkable textual sources about Japanese-Canadian history that we have right here in UBC, uh, Rare Books and Special Collection, Japanese-Canadian Collection. Uh, so this is something that uh, this Mori Itsuji says. When we reflect on the fact that over the last 50 years, Canada has provided us and our forebears with the basic needs of life, food, of, of food, shelter, and clothing. It is only common essential that we, out of our debts of gratitude, lend our collective support to help Canada overcome its greatest national crisis yet. To do so is a humane way. Moreover, awfully and humbly, it is precisely here where the great and venerable heart of our imperial ancestors lay. We ought to tr transform our love for the nation into the love for the humanity and our love for the state into the love for the world. When we, the 20,000 plus Doho in Canada, redirect our feelings for Japan toward Canada and its national crisis and cultivate the love for the world in our hearts, we are in service of the great and venerable imperial heart and that shall bring to fruition our loyalty toward Canada. So, you know, here is a perfect meshing of Japanese value and, and really uh, uh, chauvinism toward Jap Japan and Japanese emperor uh, that is being redirected toward Canada um, in a really dramatic way. So, you know, uh, this is out of the ideological spectrum of immigrant community. He's leaning toward very right. <laughs> so no, you know, doesn't necessarily represent the view of all the immigrants. Um, but, you know, the basic idea that we are Doho, Japan, Japanese people, uh, the idea that they are Japanese is conveyed in uh, messages of varying ideological orientation. Even, you know, uh, really harsh, scathing critiques of Japan that are featured in, you know, Japanese language newspapers are, are premised on the idea that we are Japanese. Um, a scathing attack about uh, the Japanese trying to bring uh, the abolition of uh, racism uh, in the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, so this one article uh, uh, really, you know, ridiculed us, saying, you know, what is Japan doing? It's, you know, it's saying that, but look what it's doing to people in Korea, in, in Taiwan. It's such a racist country, and they, they're trying to advocate the abolition of, of racism on the global stage, resolve your own problems. And then what this article says is like this, you know, so we still need Japanese language education, uh, uh, the only amount of language proficiency that the Nisei, the Canadian-born Japanese, need is so that they can write essays to, to illuminate or, or enlighten Japanese about true <laughs> democracy. So the idea that, you know, the mission to save this miserable country out there lay in us, the Canadian-born uh, Doho, you know, that, so there is a profound range in the type of uh, message that, are, that is conveyed under the man, uh, the 
rhetorical identity of Japanese. Uh, but this basic idea of you know being Japanese seems to be you know something like a generative force in the construction of this public discourse, uh, a sense of community, a, a public within uh, among Japanese people in Canada. When was it that you said this person said this? About early 1942. Yeah, yeah, February 1942. Yeah. So just three months after. Or yes. After Pearl Harbor. Yeah. So uh, he, I think, he was very much in in pain and in internal conflict as you know the Canada, the home, his home is fighting his home country. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.